Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 16. What's printed in your bulletin is verses 1 to 10 because that's where we're going to be focusing. And allow me to read. As we've begun this new series, we walked into paradise lost and found and now we begin with the age-old story of Cain and Abel. Allow me to read verses 1 to 16. Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And this is God's word. We've been saying over the last couple of weeks that the Bible is not just a set of disconnected stories with lessons on how to live a good life, with lessons on how to live a moral life, but rather it's a single story. The book of Genesis, for instance, tells us everything we probably need to know about the gospel, about faith, repentance, salvation, everything that we need to know. Everything that we need to know about what's wrong with the world, what God's doing to deal with what's wrong with the world, and ultimately how this entire, this amazing story ends. Now last week we gave an answer to what's wrong with the, the human condition. What is wrong with the world? And we said that the answer is complex, but it can be summed up in a very small word, sin. Sin. How else do you explain the tragedies and the atrocities that have been committed by man throughout the history of the world. How do you explain that? There's no sufficient explanation. There's no one single sufficient explanation that scholars or scientists have been able to put together, which means you can't rationalize it with the fact that there's a lack of education in some parts. You can't rationalize it with the lack of technology or through genetics or through science. They're all insufficient. All insufficient means of explanation. In other words, we need to re-articulate we need to reevaluate and then rearticulate what's really wrong with the world. We need a language for understanding this human condition. And this text, it's our first case study of life outside the garden, life in sin, east of Eden. 
And it's not just, you can't just narrow it down to a story about murder and death, although there is murder and there is death. You have to think about life. This is what life is like in a fallen world. So there's three things we're going to learn today about life in a fallen world. The secrecy, the hiddenness of sin, the power of sin, and our victory over sin. Hiddenness of sin, power of sin, and then our victory over sin. First, the secrecy, the hiddenness of sin. We can all relate to this. Sin is of the heart. You have to recognize it. We see this in verses 1 to 7. Cain and Abel, on the outside, very similar people. They're both trying to obey God. They're both trying to honor God. They're both trying to worship God. They gave him offerings. They both appear to have a relationship with God. In fact, both Cain and Abel. You see Cain having a conversation with God, not Abel, in this passage. Both of them on the outside appear to be okay spiritually. But something's going on inside Cain. Now, this isn't a narrative where, you know, one person on the outside is living a really bad, broken, wild life where he's hurting lots of people while the other person is living a very good, moral, spiritually upright life and he's helping to save people. That's not what you see here. The only difference between Cain and Abel in this passage is Cain is a farmer and Abel is a herder. He's got flocks. That's the only difference. Their careers. Everything else, you know, appears to be the same. They both offered their incomes or part of their incomes to God. But God blessed Abel. And he didn't favor Cain. Why? Now, Cain and Abel, they lived in an agrarian society. What that that meant is that their currency, their income was based on what they grew from the ground, what they raised, right? There was no, you know, banks or, you know, investments. Their investment was really their their fields and their animals that that they raised. So their capital income was based on the augmentation, the increasing, you know, whatever blessing they received from the ground, and so if you get to think about it this way, if you had, if you gave birth, you know, if your animals gave birth to 10 new animals this year, you know, your tithe would be what? One of those animals. If you had crops, based on how much those crops grew, you tithed a portion of those crops. That's what Cain and Abel were doing. One was giving from their crops, the other was giving from their herds. But this is the rub. The text reads, verses 1 to 7, that Cain gave from his crops, right, as you should. But there's two ways of giving. There's the logical way of giving, right? The logical way of giving is I raise a certain amount, and then I take a portion of that, and I sacrifice that to God. That's logical. But that's not what Abel did. The text here says that Abel gave of the first fruits. The Abel gave, he sacrificed from his firstborn. You know what that means? Animal gets born. Whereas Cain waited for the crops to grow and then tithed. Abel, first one was born, he sacrificed it. What if you only have two animals born that year? That means he tithed 50%. What if it was a bad season and only one animal was born that year? That means that Abel gained nothing for himself. And God had favor because he looked at what Abel was doing. Now, some people are really calculating, really calculating about what they give. But other people, they give in joy. They give just trusting. They give almost, it almost seems reckless. 
you know, and, and that's a different kind of giving, you know, with Abel. Hebrews chapter 12, it kind of explains that. It says that Abel gave by faith. In Hebrews chapter 12, it, it cites Abel's faith, that he gave his offerings in faith. What does that mean? Now, up until this point, you know, they both had faith in God. Cain, you know, he believed in God. He was actually talking with him in this passage. But Abel, if you think about it up until this point, it's only been a chapter since the Garden of Eden. So the story of redemption, God's promise, was literally just a promise There wasn't much revealed to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel up until this point about how God was going to bring about redemption, how God was going to restore the brokenness of the world. All he did was that he promised that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. We read that last week. So there was a promise of redemption, and that was it. All they had were these words. They didn't know how it was going to come about. Abel gave in faith. He looked ahead. He knew that it was coming. And out of that faith, he gave. So the reason for giving offering at all, either it's going to be in response to a promise of salvation or it's going to be a means to salvation, Abel gave as a response, out of gratitude. He saw the brokenness, he's living out the brokenness, but he knew the promise. And out of the promise, he gave. Some people give because if they don't give, they feel guilty. Some people give because if they don't give, they feel like they'll have a terrible week. God will punish them for what they did or did not do. But Abel gave because he trusted where salvation came from. With the little that he knew, he didn't have much to bank on. It was just a promise. But he gave out of that promise. Faith is living in line with what you know. Whereas Cain, he worked hard to earn favor. He was giving, not necessarily as a response to salvation, but to earn favor from God. And when people like Cain see other people getting blessed, what happens? They get angry. So, so this isn't a very surprising passage. Cain killing his brother Abel, it's not so, we kill Abel's every day in our jealousy, in our envy, in our covetousness. When people like Cain see other people getting blessed, what happens is they say, well, you know, both of us are doing God's will, but why, you know, why does he get blessed? What is the fundamental trust that each person is relying on? What is the motivational center that's driving our giving, that's driving our goodness? Why do we get angry when other people get ahead? It reveals actually what you love, what you really, really love, what you deeply, deeply want from God. Cain's, as a result, always hate Abel's. They always hate Abel's. Abel's don't always hate Cain's, but Cain's always hate Abel's. Cain said, you know, I worked for this. I worked hard. I tried hard. I, I honored God. I tried to worship God. I give. They look at Abel's and they're constantly comparing themselves. And they feel inferior. So what happens? They get bitter. They get bitter. What does this tell you? Sin is secret. Sin is hidden. Sin distorts the furthest reaches of what we do. Sin distorts all the good things that we do because the motivations are deep. The motivations are oftentimes unrecognizable. God tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. It desires to have you. It desires to own you, but you need to master it. Sin is crouching. It's the image of a predatory animal, a predator, hiding behind a tree or a bush. 
ready, you know, when you're crouching, you're not just kind of lying around. You're, you're preparing to pounce. God is saying sin is like that. It's crouching at your door. It's preparing to have you. It desires to have you. It begins in undetectable ways, unrecognizable patterns. Unre- patterns, but unrecognizable. But it's present. It's actually abiding in you. It's living. It's residing in you. It's always hidden. It's always crouching, even presenting itself as something good. Friends, don't just rationalize your workaholism. I'm a workaholic. I'm a workaholic and I'm a worryholic. Don't just rec- rationalize your workaholism as being diligent. Don't do that. Don't just look at your vanity, you know, your looks, your figure. Don't look at these things as healthy living. Don't rationalize that. Don't look at your obsession with your salary, your obsession with your title, your role as just trying to be excellent in your calling. Don't just look at your desire to help other people as, you know, I'm just trying to be a good citizen. It could be your means of ridding yourself of guilt. It could be your way of trying to become more acceptable to God. Sin is secret. It always starts out secret. But there's always something that's usually more to our rationalization. We're using these things as currency. We're using these things to buy favor. That's the secrecy. That's the hiddenness of sin. Now, second is the power of sin. It's hidden, but it's got an incredible power. Verse 8. It's abiding in you. And if you don't deal with it, it's going to start to grow. It inevitably starts to grow. It's going to take form, and eventually it pounces. It overtakes you. Sin desires to have you, to be your master. Its presence grows and grows. Eventually, it's no longer just on the inside. What's going to happen? It unravels. It uncoils. It starts to reveal itself on the outside. And once it takes shape, it's going to take you out. It's going to take you out and all the people you care about around you. That's what it does. If you see a crouching animal, if you actually see, catch a crouching animal, you have a head start. You can run. But if you're not prepared to recognize an animal that's crouching, that's ready to pounce on you, you're a goner. You're done. It's over. The less you're aware of the location of particular potential sins in your life, the less you're going to be able to admit them, the more you're going to be defensive about them when you're confronted about them, the more you're going to rationalize them, the more you're going to try to turn things around and, and avoid, um, avoid the sin in our lives. And one day what's going to happen? Sin's going to stop crouching and it's going to pounce. It's going to attack. And you're not going to be prepared. And it's going to create this incredible force in your life and it's going to take shape. It wants to have you. It wants to devour you. Now Cain didn't just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to go kill my brother. It was all premeditated. He said, let's go out to the field. And there he killed his brother. It was all planned. And that, it started, it, it took form. It took form because it started in that hidden way, and it grew. It grew. It unveiled itself. How does that happen? You know, we're not really sure how God showed favor to Abel. We don't, it doesn't really say. It just said that he blessed him. And most likely that means, in, at least in that literal meaning, it probably meant something financial. Abel's uh, flocks probably flourished, whereas Cain's probably not as much so. And, and that made, that made Cain very, very uh, dishonored. He felt very disrespected. And the reason why there's a clue here is because Abel's name literally means worthless. Abel's name means worthless, whereas Cain's name means successful. 
So Abel was, meant loser. Cain's name meant winner. Cain was most likely regarded as the winner in the family. He was the one that was always successful. He was, all, he was the one that was always, he lived right, he did good, and, and, his, and he was honored for that, and he, was, and he was blessed in a worldly way for that. But Abel was the loser, and yet God had his eyes on Abel, and that just completely brought Cain into deep, deep envy. Because he was a success, most likely Cain placed his identity in his success. And so he couldn't stand losing to his loser of a brother. Abel was valued by God. And this truth just overtook Cain. You know, his world just completely fell apart all the way to the point of murder. The sin uncoiled. It unraveled. Sin is not just an irrational act. Sin is not just an accident. Sin is not just, thing that just, not just something that just happens. It's not a result of bad judgment. It's not a result of just bad upbringing. Sin is deep. Sin is prepared. Sin is crouching. And it's desiring to have you. It desires to own you. It's ready to pounce. But we need to master it. How do you master it? It's our victory over sin. How do you master it? So far we've said, you know, this is a really, this is one of those really depressing texts. It doesn't end very happy. How do you find victory or hope in a passage like this? And you see this from verses 6 to 10 all the way into 16. We said a lot about very little, you know, so far about God. We said a lot about Cain, a lot about Abel. And there's not a whole lot to talk about them, you know. Um, but there's a lot. We, we have to figure out what, what this text says about God. First, his gentleness. Twice in two weeks, God could have, struck Cain down right there on the spot because he knows. But what does he do? He gently initiates to Cain. As soon as Cain's life starts to spiral downward, he intercedes, he interrupts, and he says, he approaches him in a really personal way and he reasons with Cain, right? What does he say? He uncovers the sin. And, you know, verse 6, he says, why are you angry? Why, your face, why is your face downcast? What he's saying is, you know, the actual literal phrase is that Cain's face literally was down. It was looking down. It was droopy, meaning that he was depressed. He was incredibly depressed. And God personally initiates to Cain. He says, Cain, why are you angry? Why are you so depressed? He's reasoning with Cain. And he says, you know, sin, it's working to have you. It's crouching at your door. But you know what? I want you to master this. I, want, I don't want it to take over you. I want you to master this, Cain. I'm rooting for you. Look at your anger. Look at the bitterness. Look at your bitterness. Do you see these things, these moments as opportunities to grow because you see God's grace, you know, working actively in your wants, in your desires, you know, our perceived needs? Do you see God working there? You know, when you're challenged, the, you know, the Bible calls these things idolatry. Even the slightest of your desires, if they are too much, too much because you want them apart from anything that you know that God desires for you, even if it's something good. You know, the Bible calls these things idolatry. You know, but look at, but look at God. He's, he's gently teaching him. He's counseling him. He's challenging. He says, Cain, be aware. I don't want sin to master you. I want you to master sin. 
What does this tell you? The gentleness of God. He wants you to recognize sin. He wants you to own your sin. We need to study our sin. We need to know ourselves in light of our brokenness. You know, it takes a lot of courage to do that. Will you be willing to do that this week? He said, I want you to, ch- I want you to be challenged. I want you to challenge yourself in your sinfulness. You know, he's talking to Cain. I want you to pray. Pray about the subtle things that are destroying you. The tumor, you know, sin is like a tumor, he's saying. You know, you don't realize it's there, but it's there, and it's going to grow, and one day, if you don't deal with it, it's going to overtake you. It's going to consume you. So pray about these things. If you don't see it, pray through the subtleties of your life. Ask the Lord to open your eyes, reveal these things to you. Ask the Lord to give you strength. Will you do that this week? Will you do that in light of all that God has done for you? Let's pray. Guys, you know that I can't end a sermon like that, right? You know I can't do that. If I were to end with let's pray after, you know, pray for the subtle things that are killing you and challenge yourself and know yourself and study about your sin and, and recognize your sin and own up to your sin. If I were to end a sermon like that, you know, I'd be selling you short. I'd be doing you a tremendous disservice. First of all, I'd be lying to you because what I'm telling you is that you can overcome sin on your own. And that'd be a lie. I'd be hurting you. And that'd be terrible. And I don't know how many sermons you've heard in the course of your lifetime, but if you walk away thinking, you know what, I'm going to do these things and I can overcome sin, you're going to walk away feeling good from maybe here to that door and you walk out, it's going to, it's going to be very painful for you and you're going to get very resentful of God and you're going to get very resentful of me and you're going to get very resentful of the church because we failed you. How do you truly become victorious over sin? How do you really overcome sin? Look, this is in the context of a God who's incredibly active in counseling you and working you and teaching you and, and leading you and speaking directly to you. Look at God's counsel. Look at his tenderness. You know, why is he asking questions to Cain? Is it because he needs to know the answers? I mean, he knows the answers. It's not so that he can understand Cain better. He knows Cain. It's so that Cain can understand himself better. God wants you. He's reasoning with you so that you will know yourself better, the complexity of your life, the complexity of your heart. He's saying literally Cain. He's saying, Cain, I see that your face has fallen. You are downcast. You are depressed. But look at his tenderness. He doesn't say, you know, he doesn't lie. He doesn't say, you know what, but you're going to be fine. You're a winner. You're going to be fine. Look at your name. Look at your successes. He doesn't start piling all these good things on Cain. Hey, remember, you think this stuff you got on your own? I gave you these things too, Cain. You're a winner from the start. You're the firstborn. That's not what he does. He doesn't say, oh, Cain, you're going to be all right. That's not what he does. He actually speaks incredible truth to Cain. He warns him. That's probably what Cain wanted to hear, but actually what he tells Cain, he says, sin is about to devour you. He warns Cain. He says, sin can master you, but I don't want it to master you. I want you to master it. Cain lacked this inner security, this inner assurance in the love of God. So what does he do? It leads him to the point of murder, and he, and he kills Abel, and God counsels him again. He doesn't say, I know what you did, Cain. He says, Cain, where is your brother? Do you know where your brother is? 
What have you done? Do you know what you've done? God knew, and yet he's still counseling him. And it's an amazing thing here, what he says to Cain. He says, your brother's blood cries out to me. You know what that means? What he's saying is that, you know, Cain, he, he kills his brother, and he covers him in the ground, and his blood literally, I mean, it must have been incredibly gruesome. The blood is literally seeping into the ground. And God's saying, that blood, along with all the, you know, I hear the injustice of what has happened to your brother. It's literally crying out to me every day. I see the injustices of the world, the atrocities of the world. There are people out there who doubt I even exist because these atrocities are there. And yet I hear every one of them, they cry out to me. The blood of these people cry out. I hear the injustice. I see Abel. You thought you could hide him under the ground, but I still see Abel. That's what he's saying. It's an amazing thing that he's saying here. God knew. God saw. And he's saying everything that you've hidden away Everything that we've done to cover ourselves, it literally mimics what's going on in chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin, they see the shame, they cover themselves up. Cain sins, he's in shame, he covers over Abel with the ground, and yet the blood cries out, and God is so gentle, he's so tender, he's counseling. Why does he do that? How does he do that? Because what he says here, he says, their blood cries out to me every day, and one day I'm going to make it right. How does he make it right? Centuries later, another man arrives, a lot like Abel. He honored God, but this time he honored him perfectly, fully. He loved God, but he loved him wholly and completely. He worshiped God, and he worshiped God eternally, perfectly. He obeyed God. He was righteous. He obeyed God perfectly. He was like Abel, but he was even better than Abel. And he came to a world full of Cain's, people who were religiously right, who lived religiously right, who tried to live good lives, and they honored with their sacrifices, and they offered their tithes, and they performed incredibly good deeds and listened and obeyed a system of 635 laws that were set up so they could honor God, so they could worship God. And when they saw this man, it made them feel so inferior. What did they do? Just like Cain killed Abel, they killed Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30 explains it in a very particular way. He said, for those God foreknew, he predestined. So they would take the likeness of his son. So they could become conformed to the likeness of his son. And, and um, what they're saying here is that, so that because Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. That's what Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30 says. That Jesus, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? It means that Jesus also tithed. Jesus also, like Abel, gave sacrifice. Jesus also gave of the firstborn. He gave of himself. And he didn't just give a portion. He sacrificed wholly and completely, one and only, the one and only son he allowed. He willingly sacrificed himself, not to be our example, not to be a leader, not to be some religious uh, teacher for us, but to become our substitute. Jesus tithed with his body and with his blood. If you read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, that is, uh, it's printed in your call to worship. It says that you have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, the word there, a more gracious word than the blood of Abel. 
Literally saying that it's a more gracious word than the blood of Abel. When Abel's blood was spilled, God cried out in judgment and he banished Cain. But he put a mark on him and he protected him. He said, you know, people will not kill you. Why? Why is that? Because Jesus, the greater Cain, was the true firstborn. The true firstborn, the one that Abel looked to in faith. Abel couldn't rely on Cain because Cain, even though he was the firstborn, firstborn, he was a failure, he was a flaw, he was a murderer and a sinner and a cheater and a liar and envious and greedy and covetous. But the true firstborn, Abel looked to, Cain, to Christ and he looked to him in faith. Jesus died for our injustices. Jesus died for our wrongdoing. Jesus died and he died willingly and he died by design. And he didn't do this to give us a model of forgiveness, but to be our substitute for forgiveness so that he could earn forgiveness for us. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's break that down. What is he really saying? He's saying, I am able. I am able. I was the greater Cain. I was the winner, but now I've become the greater Abel. I've become a loser. And yet I'm being treated like Cain deserved. Cain murdered. He was murderous. I'm being treated like Cain deserved. I'm taking the place of Cain. I'm being completely consumed like the firstborn, a sacrifice. You know, if you're living just trying to please God, we do this all the time. We do it in very subtle ways because sin is very subtle. And that subtlety, if you let it go, it will continue to play out. You will become incredibly defensive and self-righteous. And you know what you do? You end up criticizing what's wrong with everybody around you. What's wrong with this church? What's wrong with people around you? What's wrong with people in your community group? What's wrong with people at work? Your wife, your children, you will criticize everybody, but you will not look at yourself because it's your way of avoiding looking at yourself. That's what we do in our sinfulness. It's the subtlety of sin playing out. If you live a life always trying to please God through your personal works, you're going to become like Cain. You will become envious. You will become covetous, covetous of what people have, covetous of their blessings. And you will avoid and you will not see how blessed you've been, how tender and how gentle God has been in your life. And you're never going to have joy. You're never going to experience joy because you're constantly working. You're constantly, you will never experience rest. Rest. You know, the story of Martin Luther, an incredible story about Martin Luther. Um, people tell it in different ways. Um, so, I, you know, just asking a lot of people what the true story is. But Martin Luther, um, you know, if you know, in the Catholic tradition, you go and you confess your sins to a confessor. You know, he's veiled behind this wall and you confess your sins and they remind you that you're forgiven. And so Martin Luther, every morning, would come to his prayer, prayer area and he would confess his sins. He confessed his sins every day. For a while, after a while, the time that he was taking to confess his sins started to grow. It started to expand to the point where it was consuming this guy, the confessor's mourning. And after a while, the guy couldn't take it anymore. He said, you know, Martin Luther, my whole mourning is taken up hearing you confess your sins every day. You've got to stop this. Stop this madness. So Martin Luther, knowing that he could not come to the confessor, started to write out his sins. And to this day, they say that there's an inkwell where in his writing his confessions, the devil was tormenting him, reminding him even more of more guilt as he would write faster than he could write. And he realized this is never ending. So he actually threw the inkwell and yelled out to Satan, don't forget who I am. I am a child of Christ. I am a child 
of God. This is very personal to me because, you know, I don't liken myself to Martin Luther. If I liken myself to anyone in the Bible, actually, um, it's probably the, the, the bad side of the Apostle Paul. Before he became an Apostle Paul, right, an apostle, he was, he was very self-righteous, um, very, very self-preserving and self-righteous, and, and he lived a very, very good life as a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says in Philippians 3, but it made him so bitter and so angry that the small group of people called Christians that were rising up, he couldn't stand to see them. So like Cain, he murdered. He wanted to murder them. In fact, he was there when one of the first martyrs of the Christian faith was killed. He approved it. And uh, there was no joy. And it wasn't until he came and encountered Jesus himself, he saw the person and work. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? He was literally talking to him about the gospel. You are doing what the others have done. Why are you persecuting me? And there, in encountering Christ, he went through a tremendous transformation until you get to Philippians chapter 4, this bitter, covetous man who continually confesses his covetousness in the book of Romans. says, I have learned what it means to be content in all circumstances. That's the story of my life. I don't know what your story is, but we're either all Cain's, because that's how we start, or through the gospel, we become like the greater Abel. Our circumstances, opportunities for us to sin and for that sin to really start to pounce because of the gospel, if you're working to please God, oh, you're going to become like Cain. But if you, in those moments, look to the greater Abel and the greater Cain, the firstborn who was sacrificed on our behalf, you will see that you have everything that you did not even deserve, that God has given you everything that you desire and more, an identity, righteousness, rest. You want forgiveness because you're struggling with guilt? Don't look around and compare yourself with other people. Look to Christ. You can never compare yourself with Christ. And yet he has redeemed you. He has bought redemption for you. You have access to God. And with God, that's rest. And with God, that's peace. 1 John 1.9, it's our word of encouragement that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse, cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. You know what that means? It means that on one hand, the debt is paid. Everything's been paid. Everything that you've ever done, everything that you will ever do, everything that you're thinking and doing right now, paid. What that means, but it doesn't say here, it says God is faithful. It doesn't say God is faithful and merciful to to cleanse us from our sins. It doesn't say God is faithful and gracious to to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. It doesn't say God is is, uh, faithful and good doesn't say that. It says God is faithful and just. It's banked on his justice. Justice is to receive exactly what we deserve. How could God be faithful and just to forgive us of of sin? We don't deserve that. You know why? It's because the debt is paid. Jesus paid. When Jesus intercedes for us in our sinfulness, He's not saying, oh God, please, 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 you know, you know who I am, I'm your son, please, I'm praying for my friend here. Uh, He's weak, he's really weak. Will you please forgive him? That's not what Jesus does when he's appealing. When he intercedes on our behalf, what he's saying is, you are just. God, you are just. And I paid the price. It would be unjust 
for you to punish them again. He's banking on God's justice so that we could bank on God's grace. Will you look to the greater Abel? Will you look to the greater Abel so that in our desire to get rid of our inferiority, we don't become like Cain so that we can actually love all the other Cains around us. We're all like Cain. Let's face it, we're all like Cain. So we would rid ourselves of the jealousy and the pride and the envy and the covetousness, but bank on the fact that the debt is paid, everything that we don't even deserve has already been given to us. You want love, you want assurance, stop looking around and looking towards other relationships to get what only God can fully satisfy and give. And he's given it to us. And he's shown us by something more than just a story. It's connected. It's one story. All the way to the cross, the greater Abel. When you look at the cross, that's what you should see. The debt is paid. Jesus took everything that we deserved so we could have everything that he deserved in God's justice and in his mercy and his grace. Will you trust in that this week? Will you rely on that this week? in times of the subtleties of your sin now starting to reveal itself? Will you do that? Let's pray.